0: So I'd just like to speak a little bit about um, our project. Uh, the Sisters back in England, we are, at the moment we are in our order, we are 16 nuns and we belong to the Thai forest tradition of Achen Chah, Achen Sumedho. It's from the northeast of Thailand. and. We have been invited by the Sarana Loka Foundation to uh, set up a training monastery for women on the West Coast. And as Kim said before, we are in a a house in Sunset in in San Francisco now, till the end of February, and I have put out some name cards. We have a website, and we have what we call a Vihara schedule, so people are welcome to Join in butchers, then we have meditation workshop and meal dana every day and if you're interested to visit you are very welcome and um, we will return at the end of the year and then um, again have a vihara somewhere in the bay area we are not sure yet so you could just um, look at the website again by the end of the year and see how developments are going. We have just yesterday, we have been officially invited and uh, it is uh, just now a matter of time uh, when that monastery will start to open its doors. And we are looking into uh, Santa Clara, Santa Cruz or San Mateo County in one of those three. And. Um, Yeah, I wonder what I could mention about the our order. We are called Siladara. Our order exists now for a bit more than twenty-five years, and it is a style of training which has been developed uh, from the ten precepts with some additional rules, which are partly coming from the ancient monks' training and also from the nuns' training, but we have been trying to bring it more into the modern time and adapt it to the needs of, of Western women living together. And uh, generally there is a great uh, demand for places for people to train, and our monasteries in England have become actually too small for that, so that's why we are coming uh, to America. And uh, our training, people who are interested come to visit us in a monastery and then they stay on as long-term lay women for some time. In England men can also ordain or lay men. And then there is an novitiate for one year. And then if that goes well, then another year. And then generally after about two years, if people are still interested, they can request ordination. and. Then there's like a commitment for a minimum of five years, but we don't have any life vows in in, in our training. So people generally do that as long as it serves them for waking up. And so we have a constant stream of people coming through in our monasteries. And um, there's many different ways how people can benefit either just come for a day or come for retreats or even really but sometimes take on the training and and do it for a very long time we for example we live in a monastery since both of us about since 16 years so I think... Uh, Ajahnana Bodhi has offered to give a Dhamma reflection and after that we'll have some space for question and answers either on meditation or on practice or maybe also on the project which we are coming to do here in America or any other question which might come up for you. So i pass the microphone to you.
1: So it's part, can you hear me? It's part of our tradition to um, be unprepared in, our, in, in giving a talk. So we, our teacher, Ajahn Sumedha, who particularly emphasises the importance of coming from the, the present moment and being in the present moment. So it's always a bit of an act of faith to, um, to see what comes through when one is asked to give a Dhamma reflection. But I would just like to say a little bit that the um, the focus of our practice as monastics and also what we teach to people who come is bringing mindfulness into everything we do in a day or anything is probably more realistic because we don't manage to, to remain mindful with every moment. But the our objects of meditation are always very simple and immediate things. So for example, being mindful of the breath, the in-breath and the out-breath. Developing awareness on this simple experience of breathing. And uh, when we first start to practice this, it can seem like a very boring and rather pointless exercise. But as one develops mindfulness awareness with the breath, and starts to notice the, the qualities of the breath. So for example, the breath is ever-changing. It's never the same, like a river, in the same way that a river is constantly changing, the breath is constantly moving. It's, it's never, you can't fix it at any point and say, this, you know, this is it, you can't pin it down. The nature of the breath is that it is changing. Every breath has a beginning, it increases, it gets to a, a maximum capacity, and then it diminishes until it gets to a, a point where it's ended, there's a moment of rest. And then a new breath begins. It increases, it grows, it gets to a maximum capacity, and then it diminishes and it ends. And this is the nature of everything, actually. Every I was going to say everything in the universe, but actually, the universe has the same characteristic. Everything in this conditioned realm has a beginning, it goes through a process, and it ends. So as we we work with the breath, bring attention to the breath, and not just focusing, not just concentrating on the breath, but actually recognizing, investigating the qualities, then one starts to see the, the true nature of things, the true nature of all conditioned things. So this is going on right here under our nose, every moment. And we can travel the world and look all over the place to find the, the truth or the, the right practice or the right teaching. And the teacher is right here. It's right here under our noses. And likewise, we use the body as an object of meditation, being aware of the, bringing mindfulness into the body, being present in the body and being aware of the nature of this body. It has the nature to, it it has had the nature to be born. It goes through a process of aging. It gets sick from time to time and at some point it dies and it returns to the elements of which it is made. And this is the nature of this body. So we think of this body as me and mine. It feels like me, you know, I feel like I'm here, sitting here in this body and you're over there. But, uh, you know, is it really me? Is this me and is this mine? Have I had any choice in how big it is? How I mean, a little bit of choice. <laughs> but in terms of the skeletal structure and the skin color and the whether my hair goes gray early or late and falls out or not, and these kind of things, I don't have really have any choice in any of that. It's just going on. It's It's part of nature. It belongs to nature. So in our practice, we start to investigate the things that we take for granted, that we take to be ourselves, the body which we take to be ourselves, the breath which we take to be ours, my breath. But of course we're sitting here together in a room and also there are plants in the room. So the breath is shared by all of us. It doesn't belong to any one person. The the plants are, are also breathing. I'm assuming that they're real, I'm not sure. They're not real? So they're not breathing, okay. But I did see a big tree out there that might be having some influence. <laughs> uh, so, we, you know, that we think of this as my breath, but it, at what point is it mine? At what point does it become my breath? If you really look and investigate, it's very difficult to find a point where this is me and mine. And our thoughts, you know, we take our thoughts to be ourselves. One of the first teachings I ever heard of Ajahn Sumedho was don't believe your thoughts, they weave webs of illusion. And I thought, what? How can you not believe your thoughts? You know, if you don't believe your thoughts, it's actually quite a scary prospect. If I don't believe my thoughts, then then I've got nothing to hold on to, you know. Then what could, what am I if I'm not my thoughts? But the thoughts come and go, you know. And as Asananda Jitto is saying in the meditation, be aware of the thoughts that arise. They they have their life span and they cease. So we might begin on a in a sitting and feel like, okay, I want to focus on the breath, and I and I'm not going to pay attention to any thoughts. I don't want any thoughts just stay with the breath and get really concentrated. And then thoughts start to come in. You start thinking about all kinds of things. Sometimes we have late night sits. Actually tonight in the monastery is one of those evenings. And uh, every second week, there's a meditation through the night. So till midnight and then we have a break and then we carry on going through till 3.30 in the morning, sitting and walking. And sometimes on these nights, all kinds of ridiculous thoughts start to come into <laughs> into the mind. It's almost like a, watching nonsense TV, you know. Just rubbish can come up. So, you know, when that happens, it's not. That I, I'm quite aware this is not me deciding to think nonsense thoughts. It's these thoughts are coming in. I don't really want them there. I'd rather be focused on my breath and concentrated and having a nice meditation. But the thoughts are coming in. So if they're coming in without much control on my part. Are they me and are they mine? It's to be investigated. And the feelings that arise and cease all the time in our experience, in sitting here, there is the feeling of the body sitting. There is the contact on the chair right now. So I'm, I'm not asking you to think about it, but directly experience it. There is this feeling. And then there, there are the emotional feelings that change, arise and cease. So can, can we really say that they, they belong to us, that they are ours? Can we keep them? Could we take a nice feeling home with us if we wanted to? You know? <laughs> Have a feeling library. We can have all the the feelings that we like and pick out when we feel like it. We can't. And also our perceptions. You know, we take our perceptions to be real. And we assume often that other people have the same perceptions as we do. So it's very interesting to live in a community and uh, to get to know each other live together for a long time you get to see that you know what i perceive as real and normal someone else doesn't even relate to that at all they're having a completely different experience in the same house in the same with the same people you know whereas my perception feels absolutely real and it must be real because i feel it and it's strong and it's mine but then to start to investigate that you know It's a perception, it's a colouring of reality. And our thoughts we've spoken about. And then sense consciousness, the um, tastes, smells, sights, sounds, feelings and ideas, all of these things, they're coming and going. And we hold on to them as ours. You know, we hold on to them. We we look for identity in them. So I've been recently. A, a, two men came to visit us, who uh, they work with a with um, a technique, which was sort of discovered by an Englishman in the twenties, and uh, it's called "On Having No Head." So this may sound a little strange. And uh, these two men are twins and they're in their 50s now. And they first met this teacher when they were 17 and started practicing his technique when they were 17. And uh, what this teacher, Douglas Harding, what he was pointing to was there is a space within which all of these things, which I'm speaking about, the feelings, perceptions, visual images. You know, all of these things go on within a space. And this space is here. So if you point here, you notice that there's a space. You can't see your own face. So I can see all your, your face. And you assume that you, your face is a certain way, but you can't actually see your own face. You can't see your own eyes. It's, it's, a, it's an idea. You have an idea of your face. I have an idea of my face, but I can't see it. So there's this space here that you're all in. <laughs> so you're part of me and i part of you in that way. And uh, that space doesn't change. That space is always simply a space, just as Sister Santichita is speaking about the waves in the ocean. So the ocean is kind of constant, it is the ocean. And then the waves, they they come up, they take form, they look like some separate something, and then they fall back into the ocean. So it's the same with all of these, what we call the Five Khandas, all of these elements of body, feeling, perception, thoughts, sense consciousness. All of these things, they they arise out of the space and they return to the space. And yet we identify with the, with these five candles. We, we identify with these things. We identify with the objects of, of mind or the objects of our experience in life. So we may experience pl- wonderful things in our life and we identify with that success and wonderful relationships and money, whatever it might be. We may have good things that we can identify with in our life. Or we may have had very, very troubled lives. A lot of pain and suffering, confusion. And we identify with that. But there is a a space within which all of this is happening. And it is our awareness. It is the space of awareness, and it's ever-present. It's never-changing, it's constant. It's here, right now. Without it, you wouldn't be able to hear me or see anything in this room, so it's right here. So, of course, we look for pleasant experiences in our life. We want to have good things happen, we want to have pleasant experiences, we want to have good relationships, we want to have a happy life. And uh, you know, what we'll find, I'm sure everyone knows, what we'll find is there is some good and there is some bad, there is some happiness and some pain. And, that, and this is the nature of conditioned things. Every, any, anything, any any conditioned thing, or relationship, or um, thought, idea, anything that, that one can experience, it has a potential for gratification. There's a potential for temporary satisfaction to come from from these things. We can, you know, we do experience joy in a, in having a good meal, or in being with a good friend, or in seeing a beautiful sunset. We live very close to the ocean and we can go out and watch these really beautiful sunsets going into the ocean. It's lovely. So there can be joy and and, uh, a sense of fulfillment in that and then it changes and then the sun has set. You know, if we stay there, if we stay with that, the sun sets and then it's maybe some beautiful clouds for a while and then it starts to get dark and then it starts to get cold. And then maybe it starts raining, you know. And then it's a really long night, and we're wondering why we're here, standing here. (laughs) You know, so if we stay with something, it changes. And there's the the positive and the negative, or there's the beautiful and the ugly, the, the gratifying and the no longer gratifying. And this is the nature of things. So the Buddha points us to living in a skillful way, developing you know, wholesome action in body, speech and mind. So in that way we're manifesting in the world in a, in a way that doesn't harm ourselves or others and it benefits ourselves and others. So this is the most, uh, as, a, as, as, we, as we are here and as we are manifested in this world, this is something good that we can do, you know, we can make the best of what we have but there's also the liberating teaching of pointing to that within which all of this is happening, the wider context. So in the Zen tradition, they they ask the question, what was your original face before you were born? You think, what? What's that mean? But you might have experienced moments where the sense of self falls away, and there is just this being. There is simply an opening to the present moment without me and mine and the plans and the worries and the regrets, but just this present moment. And it's actually right here <laughs> in every moment, but a lot of the time we're looking in the wrong place. So. Um, that may or may not have made sense to you. I don't know, but I would just like to encourage, to, you know, not to always be fixated on the waves that are that are forming on the ocean, but also to be aware of the the, the vastness of the ocean, out of which these waves come. And there's a poem that just comes to mind that I Heard, which is by a Tibetan Rinpoche, and it's it's pointing to the same thing. Says it goes like this: Rest in natural great peace. This exhausted mind, beaten helplessly by karma and neurotic thoughts, like the relentless fury of the pounding waves on the infinite ocean of samsara rest in natural great peace take rest and when i first heard that poem i was very touched because it pointed to the the relentlessness of samsara that the the process of birth aging and death whether that is in in our own body or in a in a Movement of the mind, a desire which we wish to fulfill, whatever it might be, that, that, that movement is endless, it's vast, it's, it's constantly crashing away in our lives. And there is this peace that we don't have to stop the waves from forming in order to find the peace, it's right here. So I'd like to offer that for your reflection. And we welcome any questions and we'll, we'll just hand the mic between us and so we'll take turns in answering. And if you have any questions about anything from this evening or about your practice generally, which you'd like to ask, please do feel free to ask.
0: So we have like about twenty minutes for questions. Yes. Um, myself, um, I just, uh, was always, I mean, like, I think everybody, you know, looking for, for direction in my life, in different areas, studying and arts and whatever. And by coincidence, I just, um, I remember my first real deep, um, Encounter with Buddhism was when I was uh, in Burma, 1987, in the hot season, in a train, and it was extremely hot, and uh, was no air conditioning, and and nothing, and lots of people in that com- in that train, in the in the carriage, I think you say, and everybody was really going pretty crazy because it was so hot, but there were two monks sitting, they were sitting very calm just sitting there for that whole trip, which was very, many hours, I think eight or ten hours, and they weren't doing very much, they weren't moving very much, they were just very equanimous with everything. And that was deeply impressive for me at that time. I just thought I'd like to be like them. and And then about I think a year later, by coincidence, I made my first meditation retreat in Thailand, and seeing my first teacher being just that way, as those monks have been that time. Uh, that really, you know, got me very interested and then I started to get the information and it made a lot of sense to me and and I felt like um, a very strong pull towards monastic life because I felt like, um, you know, to have that support sounded very good to me because there was a lot in my life which was quite um, rather unbalanced and so yeah so my first retreat i did 1988 in thailand and uh, about two three years later i moved into that monastery in thailand and stayed with my first teacher for about a good year and then because he was already very old Archan Buddha Dasa, he was when I met him, I think 84 or so, and he passed away when he was age 87. So then I came to England, and that was the only option in the West, really, to to get training at that time. And after living for five years in Thailand, it, it I felt like it's um, important for me to to train with people from a similar similar cultural background. And that is what brought me to England. And I was thinking I'll do that for one or two years. Now it's 16 years. Because as I go along, I, I just see, you know, how much there is still do for me to learn. So that's basically my background story.
1: Yeah, it's hard to say. Actually, as I sit here, I realize it's, it's hard to say exactly. Why? And uh, I, I, in a way, I felt like I didn't have a lot of choice in the matter, to be honest. But uh, I did come across the Buddha's teaching when I was a teenager, after going through quite a heavy depression for a couple of years. And when I when I came across the Four Noble Truths, which say the the Four Noble Truths point out there is suffering, there is a cause. There is a cessation, and there is a path leading to the cessation. When I came across those Four Noble Truths, it was like, oh, this is great. It was partly the first Noble Truth that I was so happy to hear, because nobody seemed to be acknowledging it, and it was my predominant experience at the time that there is suffering. So that was just wonderful to have somebody with authority acknowledging that that's the case. <laughs> And uh, and then the fourth noble truth that that there is a way out here and now, that that really just kind of blew my mind actually it just opened my mind, and I, I did not at all understand how to find it, but I did have faith in the Buddha from that point really, so that was when I was fourteen. And then when I was 20, I I was interested to learn meditation over those years, but I couldn't find anybody to teach me. I was in a very, very rural part of Wales and there was nothing much happening there. So when I was 20, I met a man who'd who'd been on retreat with also the same teacher, Ajahn Buddhadasa, as uh, Ajahn Santichita started with. And he taught me basic anapanasati, mindfulness of breathing. And uh, when I so as I meditate, I realized, it, for me, it was like, I wondered how I'd survived so long without it and how people survive without it, because it was like, you eat, you sleep, you breathe, and you meditate. You know, It felt like the missing thing, just for basic sanity, actually. And uh, that was how it felt to me. And not long after that, this person who taught me meditation went to live at Amravati and invited me to visit This is the monastery where I live now normally. And I visited partly to see the monastery and partly to see my friend. And uh, I, it was just a, an immediate experience of I'm home as soon as I walked through the gates really before I'd met any monks or nuns. or. And it wasn't a very beautiful, at, at that time it wasn't a very beautiful temple. It, it looked like an army barracks actually because it was built by the army and it, there was no temple or anything. But there was just this feeling of, ah, I'm home, which I hadn't experienced before. And that was when I was 22. And then I spent a couple of years trying to not go and live in the monastery because I felt I was too young and I wanted to live my life a bit more. And then when I was 24, well actually Ajahn Chah, our teacher's teacher, he died in 92, in the beginning of 92. And I I did feel a lot of gratitude towards him for the teachings that he'd passed on and for the monasteries that had evolved through him. So I kind of, uh, on the evening that he died, I went to the monastery. I was living not far from a monastery in Northumberland. And I kind of determined at that time, okay, I'll I'll offer one year of my life to the monastery sometime. And uh, that kind of just started a, a bit of a karmic Momentum, and uh, I, I, just felt I had to. There came a point where I realised I have to go and do this now. So that was in '92, and it was kind of I, I, I went there with the sense I'll go for one year, but there was also sort of a, a quiet knowing that I was on a one-way ticket. You know? So it was, it did feel rather out of my hands. Really, it was like a like a calling or something like that.
0: What would you like to know? I mean, the plans is you would like to um, establish a, a place in a rural area for about, like, 30 people, 30 people to live, including guests and, and um, novices and nuns, so that's about the, that's the plan.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: It would be that we are the core group of nuns who want to establish the place. We are actually three. Arjuna Bodhi, myself, and uh, Sister Meta, a nun from Germany, who has been um, training with Arjuna Buddha also in the beginning, we we met at that monastery in Thailand many many years ago, nineteen in the nine, very early nineties, yeah. Yeah, she's now also a nun with us, mm-hmm. and it's a place where where women can train as monastics, but. Yeah, men can also come to visit and stay as guests, but not train. And, you know, one feature of what we are also doing every week, we are going on, on arms round. We we eat every day, you know, from our arms bowls. And uh, on Fridays, we going into, we go, we walk like 30, 40 minutes to a. To, um, a place where there's lots of uh, Asian people living and lots of Asian shops and we stand with our arms balls and then within this last six weeks, you know, we have been already um, developed quite a good connection with the people there and now when we're going every Friday we get a lot of food to carry, we have to even carry it back in plastic bags, so people are very happy to, we wouldn't have thought that this goes so fast, it's amazing. Yeah. So our form is really very much, uh, uh, you can say, a marriage between the very old and the, and the and the new. So we try to to use the basic elements of the mendicant life and and, and bring it together with you know, skillful means of of the third millennium. Really, you know, we also uh, are open to use skillful means from from. Uh, this time we are open to work um, with um, you know knowledge which has been developed over the last you know 20, 30 years in terms of psychology also, and I think um, we have uh, found a way to to live this life and and not. Uh, you know make it become too artificial you know it's not uh, not just trying to um, escape you know from what what is uh, required in order to to respond to what is happening here and now because there is sometimes like a some people think, you know, if you go to the monastery, you are just, you are escaped the world. You are not really, you're not doing anything. You're just sitting and 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 watching your neighbor, I think people say. And I must say, it's very different from that. You know, it's not an escape at all. It's just really, um, you know, stripping away things which are not really necessary. And... Uh, trying to preserve energy, to, to just use it, to to um, um, cultivate the mind, really. Which doesn't mean, you know, that certain things which we are not doing, like, for example, not eating after 12, not handling money, not going to shows, not, you know, beautifying ourselves with perfumes and cosmetics and... Not you know having not having uh, intimate relationships. Uh, that doesn't mean that those things are per se negative or bad or anything like that. But it's that we are just choosing to renounce you know things which you can renounce and you still can survive. We wouldn't be able to renounce eating because then we'd die. So we do the things which we need to do in order to survive. That's shortly speaking you know we are. We need the four requisites. We eat, and we, we sleep, and we need clothes, and we need medicine, and we need teachings. So we try to simplify our lives. And the energy which we free up through that, we can use for study, and we can use for meditation. And um, is there anything you'd like to say to that?
1: Well, just coming back to the question about the, the vision of our... Of of our monastery, I mean, what we're looking for is land with pro- with the property on it, with a building, with facilities, and we're at the moment looking in the San Mateo, Santa Clara, and Santa Cruz areas. We're, that's where we're looking at the moment, and uh, we're looking we're we're looking for a place for for the monastics to train but also for people to be able to come and you know be nourished by the monastery itself so where we've been staying for the last six weeks or so in uh, sunset district in San Francisco it's been lo- it's been lovely to see how much people have been coming somebody here today who came and offered us a meal how much people have been coming and taking part in the actual monastic experience. So, you know, we come out and and teach, but our main focus is on living the monastic life and sharing that with others who want to come. So tonight in the monastery there is also quite a number of people there, and some are sitting through till midnight because it's the half moon night. And uh, people come for the evening, what we call evening pujas, which is chanting and meditation, which we have five evenings a week. And we have also on Saturdays a meditation workshop starting from 3 o'clock in the afternoon where we, where we teach guided meditation. And we have tea some days a week where, where people can come and join us and speak a bit. So uh, you know, part of the vision is to provide a training facility for women because there aren't that many of them. And also to you know, share our monastic life with others who are interested and that it, you know, it isn't that people have to be interested to ordain but just that they, they like you know, to, to be able to just take in the good vibrations really of the monastery yeah so that's also part of what we want to share
0: and I think now we'd like to just end with, oh, do you have a question? No.
1: Wait, wait, one more yeah. uh,
0: I mean it's Charnit, uh, teachings are of course also part of the Theravada teaching, but our teacher, Archon Sumedha, is mainly focusing on, um, you know, uh, awareness and practicing daily life and we are, he's teaching very much, you know, opening the mind to the space and to the silence and it's not very much about uh, concentration and focusing in that sense because it, Chana practice basically needs uh, quite a controlled environment for most people. Only I you know some people, you know, who are very special can develop a strong concentration also in a busy life. And our monasteries are very much set up, you know, to have a lot of guests coming through. So it's all it's very much about community practice, being together in a space and learning to tolerate what's going on within your own body and mind through being together with people from many different countries. We're an international community, many different backgrounds, and so on and so forth. So it's very much about mindfulness with daily life. And I think, you know, to, to, to have some training in concentration is is very much... Helpful to strengthen the mind, but if that's the main focus, it's it's very difficult for people to live together in that way. We have seen over over time. Yeah. So it seems that very much of your practice is related to
2: being in relationship, mm-hmm. um, and an element of the practice that is about um, being completely removed from relationship, being free, in a sense. I'm, I'm curious if you have any insights on the way to be in relationship that undoes that stickiness.
1: I think we're all still working on it. <laughs> i mean there's certainly a, you know a lot of emphasis on the the fact that attachment leads to suffering that's very very clearly pointed out in our community and in our practice so when suffering arises it is because of attachment and that's always the case and uh, and there is you know relationship with people with the environment with ourselves you know I mean, there's been, there were a number of years where in Sumedo in our winter retreat, we have each year in the monastery, in, in the monasteries in England and also in Abayagiri they do it. The whole community goes into retreat for three months, so silent retreat. And the, we don't have guests coming and going, but we have a, people who who've uh, volunteer to come and take care of the kitchen for that time. And then they also take part in the retreat. And uh, because it is a very busy place where we live, you know, usually you really look forward to that time when you can just go into silent retreat and put it all down and go deeply inside. And, and one year he announced that the theme of the retreat that year was conviviality, and it was like, oh my goodness! But he was pointing to not like hanging out, chatting with each other, but to be, to, but to become convivial or had to develop a friendly relationship with oneself and others. So, you know, if you've got an idea of we're on retreat and it's silent and you know, and then you start to get really irritated by somebody who's making a noise next door, or someone who slams the door when they come in. You know, and so, and then you go around going, shh, shh, all the time. And, you know, there's no sense of well-being or joy or or open-mindedness. It's all very tight and kind of frustrated. So he was, and he'd witnessed this happening over years, you know, and so he just realized, okay, I need to take a different approach. And and was, you know, just encouraging us through a three month period to investigate, what does it mean to be convivial with oneself? And I can say we're still, and others, not just not oneself, oneself and others. And I certainly am still, you know, investigating that. So I would say it's an ongoing investigation and uh, and to really, notice where that, that kind of grasping happens, that tight hold happens, and see what is it like to, to you know, if we're holding a relationship like that, and we're afraid that if we let go, it's going to be like that, we could just see well, what is it like to do that? And that you don't lose anything, you know. So, but it's to be... Investigated. You have to. You have to explore it for yourselves. Really. So I think that's all the time we have, and we'd like to end with a little blessing.
0: Yeah, we are chanting now a blessing chant, and it's about sharing of blessings. The blessings of this evening, which we have spent together in a wholesome way, and we have this bag with little Buddhas from Thailand, and. If during the chanting you can just hand it, you know, have it go around and everybody can pick one out, yeah. Just don't, don't, uh, don't keep it for yourself. Just pass it on, okay? Because if we have observed many times it just gets stuck somewhere. So just have it go through.
1: Let us chant the verses of sharing and
2: aspiration the goodness that arises from my practice may my spiritual teachers and guides of great virtue my mother, my father and my relatives the sun and the moon and all virtuous leaders of the world may the highest gods and evil forces celestial beings guardian spirits of the earth and the lord of death may those who are friendly indifferent or hostile may all beings receive the blessings of my life May the soon attain the threefold place, and realize the deathless through the goodness that arises from my practice, and through this act of sharing, may all desires and attachments quickly cease, and all harmful states of mind, Until I realize Nibbana, in every kind of birth, may I have an upright mind, with mindfulness and wisdom, austerity and vigor, may the forces of delusion not take hold, nor weaken my resolve. The Buddha is my excellent refuge, unsurpassed is the protection of the Dhamma. The solitary Buddha is my noble Lord, the Dhamma is my supreme support. Through the supreme power of all this, may darkness and delusion be dispelled.
1: we wish you well in your practice. May you continue to investigate and find freedom. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit
2: dharmaseed.org slash donate.